All right, find your way over to Hebrews chapter 9 this morning. Going chapter by chapter through Hebrews, we're in chapter 9. Today we get a lot of talk about the tabernacle and the rituals of purification. Remember, as we're tracking through this book, for a Hebrew who had become a Christian, a Jewish person who had been under the Old Covenant, there were some significant hurdles they'd have to get past with this theology of a new covenant in Christ Jesus. So, um, you know, when we try to put ourselves in that position, we should have some real compassion for the mental difficulty, I think, that would be for the average Jewish person who believed that Jesus was Messiah, but then was being told, hey, and by the way, every, uh, effectively, so much of what your culture has been about and your theology has been about is radically shifting now. It wasn't that it was wrong, but that the Lord was doing a new work. And since Hebrew Christians were the primary audience, our author spends a lot of time developing and expanding the defense of this new dispensation that Christ's death had ushered in. We've been talking a lot about Christ's priesthood and and, um, how it is greater than Aaron's priesthood and how it is valid. And so um, he's spending a lot of time on this, but it's a necessary thing. What we're going to focus on this morning is blood. That's a major topic in this chapter. And really, if you go through the whole Bible, looking at topics and looking at analogies and and, and things that the Lord gives us, blood holds a prominent place for God's people because of what it typifies and represents. Uh, Starting all the way in the Garden of Eden, there after the fall of man, blood plays a prominent role. Uh, All the way through, of course, the law and and the prophets and the Old Testament, there into the book of Acts with the simple restrictions that were laid out by the Jerusalem council. Blood plays a role there. And then we see some of the images in heaven in the book of the revelation of Jesus Christ. There is significance in blood. Uh, And we see some of that significance here in our text. So let's take a look at it and and see what we see. Starting in verse 1, it says, Then indeed... Even the first covenant had ordinances of divine service and the earthly sanctuary. For a tabernacle was prepared, the first part in which was the lampstand, the table, and the showbread, which is called the sanctuary, and behind the second veil, the part of the tabernacle which is called the holiest of all, which had the golden censer and the ark of the covenant overlaid on all sides with gold, in which were the golden pot that had the manna, Aaron's rod that budded, and the tablets of the covenant, And above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. Now, when these things had been thus prepared, the priests always went into the first part of the tabernacle performing the services. But into the second part, the high priest went alone once a year, not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the people's sins committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit indicating this that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest while the first tabernacle was still standing. It was symbolic for the present time in which both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make him who performed the service perfect in regard to the conscience, concerned only with food and drinks, various washings and fleshly ordinances imposed until the time of reformation. But Christ came as high priest of the good things to come with the greater and more perfect tabernacle not made with hands, That is not of this creation, not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood, he entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifies uh, for the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, 
who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. And for this reason, he is the mediator of the new covenant by means of death for the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant, that those who are called may receive the promise of the internal inheritance. For where there is a testament, there must also be, uh, there must also of necessity be the death of the testator. For a testament is in force after men are dead, since it has no power at all while the testator lives. Therefore, not even the first covenant was dedicated without blood. For when Moses had spoken every precept to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of calves and goats with water, scarlet wool, and hyssop. He sprinkled both uh, the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you. Then likewise he sprinkled with blood both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry. And according to the law, almost all things are purified with blood. And without shedding of blood, there is no remission. Therefore, it was necessary that the copies of these things in the heavens should be purified with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has not entered the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Not that he should offer himself often as the high priest enters the most holy place every year with the blood of another. He then would have to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now, once at the end of the ages, he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And as it is appointed for men to die once, but after this, the judgment. So Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. To those who eagerly await for him, he will appear a second time apart from sin for salvation. The power of blood is not only a physical reality, it is a spiritual one as well. You know, we sing songs in the church and throughout history about the power of Christ's blood. Uh, Here in our text, we're told that it is blood that brings us remission of sins. It is blood that cleanses our consciences. It is blood that enables us to serve the living God. It is blood that brings us a new covenant in Christ Jesus. It is blood that purifies and sanctifies. It's kind of strange if you step back and look at it. It's a little bit, um, it's a little bit gory, you know, all this talk about blood. And if you look through the Bible, just the prominence of blood and the importance of it. Uh, But here we're given a back and forth comparison between Jesus' blood shed on the cross and the blood of animals that was used for the sacrifices and the consecration of the tabernacle under Moses and also the temple uh, after Solomon. And if we think about uh, if we think about that and start seeing the types in some of these uh, previous references to blood types in Leviticus and the rest of the law, it's interesting to see the role of blood in the work of God in the lives of his people. In Leviticus 17, 14, when God is talking to Moses about purifying all these vessels and sanctifying the tabernacle using blood, the Lord says to Moses, he says, that blood sustains life. And and as we see Christ talking about his blood in the Gospels and the role that it plays in our lives as his people, we find that it sustains us and empowers us spiritually. Even there in Revelation 12, verse 11, we read that believers overcome Satan, it says, by the blood of the Lamb. And so this morning, as we chew on this chapter and think about some of these things, there are a couple of specific ideas to meditate on when it comes to Christ's blood and its place in your life. First, we should think about how his blood cleanses us. Uh, There in verse 14 of Hebrews 9, it says that we are cleansed by the blood of Christ. 
We're given remission of our sins, it says in verse 22. And our consciences are made clean. Meaning that because of his sacrifice, because of the shedding of his blood and the cleansing that it brings, we can forever do away with religion and guilt as individuals trying to relate to God. In its basest form, all religion is simply an attempt to launder ourselves in front of a holy and perfect God. That's what religion is. How can I wash myself clean? How can I you know, take the, the filth of my imperfection and, and clean it off so that I'm presentable before a God who holds my life in his hands? That's what religion is. Um, some religions are like dry cleaning. You have to go and pay for someone else to clean you up. You know, we think of Scientology or some of the other cults or religions in, in the world or in human history where, where it's like the group says, well, we have the secret to God's favor. We have the secret to salvation. You come and you pay us and then we will cleanse you and we will give you that laundering. Most religion is like spot cleaning. You know, you drop, you drip some mustard on your clothes at lunch and then you're realizing, oh, I got a meeting later and you, you know, you try to spot clean that off with a towel or with water or with a little shout wipe or something and you spend, you know, depending on how important the rest of your day is, you spend some time trying to clean off that spot. Uh, but Jesus comes along and he says, what I've done is I've taken you and I've, if you're willing, I will wash you in my blood. I will cleanse you with my blood and I'll present you spotless to God because I am spotless. And you don't have to buy it. You don't have to do that cleansing yourself. You just come and allow me to wash you and to cleanse you and make you spotless. We never have to work to earn God's favor. And that's an important thing to remember. It's the most natural thing in the world to think that we have to merit God's blessing. Even as Christians, even as people who read the Bible and understand what it says, it's natural to think that I have to work and I have to strive in order to earn God's blessing. Or more often, more naturally, we think I have to work and I have to strive to avoid God's anger. And, and that's not the God that is presented in the Bible. And that's not the work of Jesus' blood. Jesus' blood never fails. And Jesus' blood is never withheld from us as believers. He says, no, I, I come and I cleanse you with this. And you don't have to work to keep God from being angry because God's not angry with you. God loves you like a father loves his son. He loves you so much that he gave his son for you. He, and he did not withhold his son. Jesus Christ did not withhold his life. And so we have to uh, think about the blood of Christ and what it is and what it's done and realizing the cleansing that it's brought to us, push out the idea that I have to work and do a certain number of things so that God's not mad at me. That's not the God of the Bible. What we see here is that God washes us all together when we receive his salvation, making us spotless. Now, on this side of the cross, as believers, we still sin. And when we sin, there's repentance and restoration that needs to occur. I mean, we're not saying that we never have to worry about repentance. Of course we do. But there isn't any salvation to be re-earned. Because Christ's blood is powerful enough to cleanse us altogether of our unrighteousness. And Hebrews has been, you know, hitting this, you know, horse again and again about the sufficiency of Christ. We've been talking for a few weeks about this new covenant that Jesus talked about. And there in Luke 22, we're told that Jesus' blood brought in the new covenant. He said, hey, this is my body broken for you. This is the blood of the new covenant. When my blood is shed, a new deal is brought to the table for you guys. A, a new covenant begins. And he says that when he gave his life at Calvary, he was bringing a new arrangement for us. And as we've seen... 
he brings the lion's share to this partnership. You know, he brings all the good stuff, and he just wants us to show up and be a part of it. The most important detail that he's bringing into our relationship with him is that we're not stuck having to perpetually receive atonement for our sins anymore, but instead the Lord says, hey, I've purged them once for all. I am the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world perpetually, not that you keep bringing a lamb every year or every week or every month and, and you have to keep being reminded of your imperfection and you have to keep coming for atonement. He says, yeah, I've taken your sins and I've purged them once for all. Now, as we move around the world, though, we pick up the dust of the earth. There's a lot of sludge out there that we have to move through while we're living this life, even as Christians. But Jesus' blood reminds us that we can go to the Lord and receive cleansing. We've been washed head to toe, he told Peter. He said, but I need to wash your feet. And, and I kind of think about that as we talk about being washed by the word or washed by the blood of Christ. And, and it's a reminder that I've been forgiven. I've been presented spotless to the Lord. And then in my regular daily life, I should go to the Lord and allow him to cleanse me again, cleanse my feet and, and allow him to uh, wash those sorts of things like he did for his disciples at the Last Supper. As we draw near to the Lord and let him get his hands onto our lives, he brings that cleansing to our conscience and he takes away the weight of our sin. And it's not just a whitewashing that he does. You know, It's not like with the Pharisees who are only concerned with the outward appearance. No, after the Lord washed his disciples' feet, he invited them to take the cup, which symbolized his blood, and he says, I want you to drink this in. Uh, I've washed you, I've made you clean, and now I also want you to take this and drink it in. It's a little bit strange, but the imagery Jesus used is, was that when we drink in communion, we're drinking in his blood. And in fact, some people early on in church history were, you know, Non-Christians were like, well, this is some kind of weirdo cannibal cult. So, you know, they're talking about eating the flesh and drinking the blood of their Savior. And they didn't understand the imagery. And, but it is kind of strange to think about it. But this is the imagery that the Lord uses. He says, I want you to drink in my blood. My blood that cleanses you and makes you righteous. My blood that covers you. I want you to drink that in to yourself. And because it's a reminder that we're not just in a religion that washes the outside. And it, it, you know, we're in drinking in Christ into our lives and allowing him to work inside of us as well. Throughout the Bible, we're told that there is life in the blood. And then we're given this memorial to drink Christ's blood uh, in communion because the Lord is trying to remind us that he has a life that he wants to put inside of us. He says, you know, I'm not just coming here to regulate you. I'm not even just coming here just to forgive you. He says, I also want to, on top of forgiving you, I want to put new life into your life. I want to put a new heart into your heart. I want to put uh, a newness of creation into you. And there's spiritual nourishment that happens when we drink in Jesus and allow him to fill us up. We became Christians and God gave us a new nature and a new heart with new passions and new goals and new purposes because that's the power of Christ's blood. We drank those things in when we became believers and took that cup that Jesus was offering. When he says, hey, follow me. You know, this is my body broken for you. This is the blood of the new covenant. Do you want to be a part of that? And we say, yeah, I want to be a part of that. And he says, okay, not only am I going to wash your sins away, but I'm also going to 
you're going to take me into your life. And I'm going to nourish you and I'm going to give you new life and new goals and new passions and a new heart. And, and it's a really incredible uh, thing that the Lord has done for us. So as we look at the imagery associated with Christ's blood in the Bible, we see that we're washed in it, making us spotless. We drink it in, which gives us new life and power. So our sins are cleansed and our hearts are purified and nourished in a brand new way. Why? So we can serve the Lord. That's why uh, the Lord brings his blood that's the back half of verse 14 in our text. Let me read it to you again. It says, How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? That's the, the power of Jesus' blood enables us to serve the living God. That is a big deal. And it's the second thing, the second idea for us to think about from this passage this morning. All of us probably have some living heroes or maybe professional heroes. Maybe they're in your occupational field. Uh, maybe there's somebody else. But we all have those people who we admire or look up to or are inspired by. Imagine it for a moment if that guy came to you today and he was waiting by your car when you left here and, and he somehow in, inexplicably knew your name. He knew all about you. And, and he said, you know, I'm here today because I'm hand selecting you to do a job for me. I mean, that would be really exciting. You know, if, I think we all have those people in our lives. And if that guy was there saying, hey, I'm, I'm hand selecting you for a special job. And then he gave you his personal cell number. And he said he was happy to help out in whatever way he could. And that you could call him day or night. And you, there was, he gave you, you know, all the access you needed. But that you were the specific pick for a specific job that he had uh, in, in whatever he was doing. I think most of us would blow a gasket if our... You know, someone we admire or, or a professional hero or a personal hero um, asked us of that. We should pause to realize that the living God has done just that. He has hand-selected you for some significant part of his will and his kingdom. He knows your name. He's given you access. He's tapped you on the shoulder hoping that you'll do this special job. He says, I got something for you. I got something just for you. Special opportunities, special empowering, special gifting, special uh, 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 ministry. And I want you to be my guy doing this. That's an incredible thing. That's a big deal. And if we follow the pattern we see in the book of Hebrews, remembering that we've been invited into this new partnership, this new covenant with the Lord, we've been commissioned as priests in his kingdom, we should allow Christ's blood to cleanse us so that we're ready for that ministry. We should allow it to nourish us so that we can serve the Lord. And then we should do what the priests in the Old Testament did because that's a type for the ministry. We should go around, and as this chapter points out, sprinkling Jesus' blood on everything that we do, everything that we touch. is supposed to be smeared with the blood of Christ, which brings the remission of sins and brings power for living. There in verse 22, we see that it says, almost everything in the tabernacle was sprinkled and sanctified with blood. Now, Again, imagine something else. Imagine you walked into the tabernacle to bring your offering to the Lord there as a Jew uh, during the time of Moses or Joshua or before Solomon. You walk into this incredible tent. It's this beautiful structure with all of this, you know, these great curtains and coverings and, and all these great materials and decorations and tools and ornaments. Stuff is overlaid with gold. Everything is handcrafted and unique. And smeared over everything was blood. I mean, 
the priest would take this wool and hyssop and they would dip it into animal blood and then they just wipe it on everything. And they put it on their earlobes and they'd be putting it on their thumbs and then they'd sprinkle you with it when you uh, came in. Now that place, if you walked in to the tabernacle, that place would be unmistakable for anything other than what it was, right? No one walked in there thinking, is this a library? Is this a restaurant? Is this a, you know, a marketplace? You'd walk in there and you would immediately know this is a place of death and sacrifice and holiness. This is a place unlike any other place. And something serious is going on here. But then we take a look at ourselves and remember what the Lord has said about us. He says, yeah, now you're the temple of the Lord, and you're the priest that ministers. And we've been commanded to set everything aside in our lives and sanctify it all for the service of God. He says, you know, I cleansed you with my blood so that you can serve the living God. And now you present yourself not only as the temple, not only as the priest, but also the sacrifice. You serve in all of those roles according to the word of God. And so everything in our lives should be smeared with the blood of Christ so that what we're doing and how we're living is unmistakable. It shouldn't look like anything else. No one should should confuse our lives for any other kind of life other than a holy, sanctified, cleansed, nourished Christian life. I wonder if somebody looked at my life from the outside, if they would say that I was unmistakably living a life of sacrifice, a life of holiness, a life of worship a life that's cleansed and nourished by Christ's blood. You know, could somebody look at what I say and what I do and walk away thinking, man, that guy's bloodied up with Christ's blood. Uh, and that's an honest question that I, 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 I wonder about. And that's an honest question that came to my mind when I was reading this text. Because when we open up the Bible and look at the believers who were near to God and, and who were devoted to his service, when we look at these heroes of the faith, and we're going to get to some of them in a few chapters, No matter where they went, they were immediately recognizable to the people around them as believers on a mission for God. No matter where they were, no matter what social stratus they were in, no matter what their position was or what their job was or what their background was, we read these passages and we see their lives laid out before us on Scripture, and wherever they went, they were immediately recognizable as Christians. And the only times they weren't was when they were in sin when David is hiding with the Philistines or when Abraham is lying about his wife. Those are the only times that they weren't immediately recognizable as believers on a mission for God. Guys like Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Or, you know, you think of the disciples after Jesus' ascension and the, they're, they're there in front of the religious council and they're sent out for a minute and the, and the council says, All we know is that these guys have been with Jesus. That's clear. We don't know anything else. We don't know what's going on. We don't know why they're doing what they're doing yet, but we know that they've been with Jesus and it was confounding to them. Um, And that's what you see when you open up the, the scriptures. That's what I'm talking about. Because when God covers us with Christ's blood and when we drink in that cup, We will be filled with his power and his testimony and we'll be bringing Jesus to all of our activities and conversations. We'll be smearing our lives with the blood of Christ. And our lives will then unmistakably be marked by the power of God and the testimony of his salvation. Because there's power in the blood. We sing about it, but that's what's true. We know that from the scriptures. But there's only power in the blood if it's covering us and if it's nourishing us. You know, you think about that first communion the last supper 
the Lord said, hey, I want you to take the bread and take the cup. And so if there were disciples there that said, I'm kind of good, I don't, I'm not really into the communal cup thing, then there would be a disconnect there. There'd be an understanding that, okay, well, then you're not in communion with the Lord. You, you, you've, you've left that there. And, and so there's power in the blood if it's covering us and nourishing us. When Peter said, remember, Lord, I don't want you to wash my feet. Jesus said, okay, well, we're going to have a problem then. <laughs> we're going to have a problem because I'm going to wash your feet because that's what I do in this new partnership that we have together. That's what I do in this relationship. God intends to wash us and he wants us to drink him in so that everything inside and everything outside is covered with him and nourished by him. Thinking about our text, I don't want to go out into my life today without the blood of Christ. I love that in verse seven where it says, you know, the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies once a year, but not without blood because they were going to die if they went in there without blood. And so... Uh, that high priest would make sure that he went into that specific place that he had been called to with blood on himself and blood in his hands to go and offer to the Lord. And so I shouldn't have the approach, I should have that approach for my life because it is blood that sustains life. It is Christ's blood. And I want it to sustain me today, which means that he'll be washing me, he'll be bringing me new life, and he'll be sanctifying me to serve him, the living God. Amen? Amen.